I tell you what, that passage that Elijah read from Daniel should make every one of us weak at the knees. The one like the Son of Man came and was presented to the Ancient of Days. We know who that is. We know who that is. And that's the one that we're seeking to hear from this morning. I have a picture hanging in my living room. And it's a picture of a forest. There's some trees around and a winding road going through the woods. And there are three men walking on that road. And the text reads at the bottom of that picture, Did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked with us, by the way, and expounded unto us in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. That's a picture of Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples who heard the best sermon that was ever preached. Some people say the Sermon on the Mount was the best sermon. I think that was the best sermon because it says that Jesus expounded unto them in all the scriptures, beginning at Moses and all the prophets. He told them how it was all about him. And they heard a special word directly from the Lord. Now, isn't that what we should be coming to hear every week or every time that we open our Bibles? But we approach him so casually. I'm guilty of this. We all are. We come and we go through the motions and we don't expect to come and draw near and for our hearts to burn. We just expect to do the things that we normally do and get the things that we normally get but we don't really believe him. We lack faith, and we lack eyes to see, and we read passages like the Daniel passages. Oh, yeah, that's good. And then we flip to somewhere else, or we close our Bible, and we say a quick prayer, and that's it. But we can't see as we ought to see. But he wants to make every one of our hearts burn within us this morning as he talks with us, by the way, and expounds unto us in the Scriptures everything concerning himself. So I invite you to pray with me this morning that he would do just that because we want to hear from him. I want to hear from him. You want to hear from him, I hope. So let's pray and invite the Lord to do that. Father, we confess to you how callous our hearts are and how cold and how pitiable and wretched and poor and blind we are, that we have the Word of God, the whole counsel of it, and we can read passages like that. We can go through these glorious motions that we have every week that are intended to lead us into the throne room within the veil and to see you, and we don't see you, and we don't hear. And we pray that you would have mercy on us and that you would give us divine eyesalve so that our eyes can see, that you'd clear out our ears so that we can hear. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come by your Spirit and that you would speak to us and make our hearts burn. Give us a vision of you like those disciples got on the road when you expounded unto them the Scriptures. We pray that you do that this morning and fill our hearts with faith and expectation and, and really that you do it every morning and every week when we come here. Move us and change us to expect that from you. And let us not be ashamed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
as we continue on in this series. We're going to be covering verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 18. And so it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Then we who are left, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's interesting that he begins the passage by saying, we do not want you to be uninformed. Because throughout the rest of the book, ten times in fact, it says the phrase, you know, or you yourselves know. Most of the book is actually Paul reminding the Thessalonians of things that they already know and practice. Ten times it says that. It says in chapter 1, verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Chapter 2, verse 1, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Chapter 2, verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. Chapter 2, verse 4, verse 3, Verse 3 and 4, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Chapter 2, verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day. Verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Chapter 3, verse 3, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this, that's affliction that he's talking about. Verse 4, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Chapter 4, verse, verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, for you yourselves have been taught by God, or you know, you know how to love one another. Chapter 5, verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware, you know, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So they're well informed concerning a number of things, indeed most of the things that he's talking to them about. They already know, and, and he's seeking to stir them up by way of reminder. Okay, But here's something he's come to which they do not yet know. And that's why it begins the paragraph with, but... There's a whole, the text that Ben preached last week in chapter 4, the commands that he gives, and he's stirring them up to do the things that they know and to keep on doing them more and more. And then 
it seems odd to begin the paragraph this way, but I think that's why he does why he says, but, but you know, you know, you know this, you know this, you know this, keep doing this, keep doing this, but there's something that we don't want you to be uninformed about or ignorant, the King James says. What is it? It's this twin theme of those, we want you to know about those who are asleep or the dead in Christ and about the coming of the Lord. Those two things. And those two things tied together. Now the coming of the Lord is a predominant theme in the book. He mentions it. Paul mentions it at the close of every chapter in the book. And it's dealt with at length at the beginning of chapter 5. If you look at the end of chapter 1, it says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. The end of chapter 2. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? The end of chapter 3. Now may, the, may, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then this in chapter 4 that we're looking at. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Chapter 5, there's that whole section at the beginning that deals with it, and then at the end, he says, he gives this benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's concerned here, this thing that he doesn't want them to be uninformed about is what will, ha- what will be the ultimate destiny of those who have fallen asleep, and specifically what will happen to them at the coming of the Lord. We don't want you to be uninformed about this. Now, it seems like a strange place or a bit random to introduce this topic. But it's really not. If we look at some of the connections between his prior instructions and what he's written to them and this new information, then we'll see that it really is relevant. Because just prior, at the end of chapter 4, there's his urging regarding practical affairs. So there's a, there's a connection throughout the scriptures of connecting practical affairs, everyday works and doings with the coming of the Lord at the end of time. He says that there at the end of that chapter. The, the three things that he urges them is to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. We see this, this theme throughout the scripture, this connection. It's at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, that whole great chapter about the resurrection of Christ and our coming resurrection. He concludes it with this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And then for 2 Peter 3 It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming 
of the day of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, it says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, those are two different categories, each one's work, his work, will become manifest for the day will disclose it. That's talking about the day of the Lord. He's connecting it here again. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And then the last one in Revelation 14, 13, there, I'm sure there are many more. I just picked a few. It says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Their deeds follow them into eternity. So there's a connection there. There's a connection between him giving his practical instructions and then the coming of the Lord. The second thing is this connection between walking properly before outsiders which he mentions at the end of the text from last week, and an inordinate sorrow over death. So the, the last instruction he gives in verse 12, when he, he get, says those three things, we urge you to do those three things that I just said, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. <clears throat> and then he, he talks again in verse 13. He hearkens back to that when he says that you may not grieve as others do as the outsiders do, as those who don't have any hope. So they must know this. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of this so that they don't grieve as those who have no hope. Because what kind of testimony would it be to outsiders if they were, they say, they claim they have this great hope in Christ. Christ has been raised from the dead. We will be raised from the dead. But then a, someone they know in the Lord dies and they grieve just like the world grieves. They grieve just like the outsiders. It's a bad witness. It's a bad testimony. And so he says, we want you to know this so that you won't grieve in the same way like they do without hope. So you can have a good testimony with outsiders. The third thing is there's a connection between the brotherly love mentioned in the preceding paragraph and those who have fallen asleep. It says in verse 9, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So they would have a care and a concern for any brothers who have died in the Lord. And then the last thing is the connection between affliction and suffering and the fate of those who have fallen asleep. Affliction and suffering is mentioned repeatedly. Paul, sometimes Paul's talking about his, their own affliction, him and those who are with him, their affliction and suffering, and then sometimes he's talking about the Thessalonians' affliction and suffering. And we don't know exactly what that looked like from the text, but it could be and likely was that there were those among them who had died because of the suffering and the persecution in the Lord. And so they would want to know what happened to them and needed to know. And it also talks about back in, ver in 
chapter 2, it says, For you suffer the same things, in verse 14, For you suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And the prophets. So he wants them not to be ignorant, not to be uninformed about well, what happened to these people that we knew that died in the Lord. But what, what about all those who have gone before? What about our fathers and the prophets who have gone before in the Lord? What happens to them? Because keep in mind, they didn't have all, they didn't have the whole New Testament. They didn't have all the information that we have. So he's informing them what, what's going to happen to these Now, that particular phrase that he uses is used throughout the New Testament as a euphemism. I'm going to drop that. I know when I move this, I'm going to drop that. (laughs) That phrase is used as a euphemism for death throughout the New Testament. Those who are asleep, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ. talks about them being, being asleep. That phrase intimates that death, such a death, is only temporary. That's why he uses that, that they've fallen asleep. Because in due time, they will be resurrected bodily. So they're sleeping just for a time, and then eventually they'll be resurrected in full. And it's, con- it, it's intended to contrast with the eternal death that will be suffered by those who didn't know Christ. They will truly die eternally at last. But those who are in Christ are just asleep. And then he ties the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep to the resurrection of Christ himself. If you look at verse 14, it says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And now that's consistent with the rest of the New Testament as well. Because Christ rose, we shall rise also. Romans 6. If we've been united with him in a death like his, so shall we also be united in a resurrection like his. Over and over. 1 Corinthians 15, the same thing, the same theme. So the grounds of their hope, this hope that he's giving them, this information about not wanting them to be uninformed so that they can have a hope it's different than those who don't have a hope. It's primarily grounded not in anything present, but in the future. The dead in Christ sleep now, but they shall soon revive bodily. Though presently they're separated, they shall soon be reunited. And the last shall be first here. Because he says the dead shall precede the living at his coming. It says, we who are alive shall not precede those who are dead. They died first, but they'll be raised first. And then it says that he will descend from heaven with three things. In verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, number one, with the voice of an archangel, number two, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, number three. And then Paul goes on here to confirm Jesus' own description of his return, partially with those three statements right there, and then partially in verse 17 when it says that we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. If you remember, 
when Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew 24, he says to them, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. He says it also to the Pharisees when he's on trial. It's one of the only things that he says to them in Matthew 26. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's what the angel said in Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1. says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's wonderful when the Bible confirms itself like that in multiple places. Different authors written at different points of time. You know the Lord's saying something important. And so their great consolation here is that they will be caught up together with them in the clouds, with those who have gone before. When the Lord returns, when he comes to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth, when he comes in the clouds just in the way that he went back up, they'll be caught up together with the dead in Christ, with those who are asleep in the clouds at this magnificent event. But, but, there is a greater consolation. There's a greater consolation still. And it's in two parts. If you look towards the end of the chapter, verse 17... It says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So meeting the Lord in the air and always being with him. This is a greater consolation that can't even be hardly compared to meeting those who have fallen asleep in Christ. It's the greatest consolation that they will meet him in the air, and always be with him. We don't really think about this often. I'm guilty of this. We hear things like that, just like I was saying at the beginning. We hear things like that, and it just, it doesn't move us. It doesn't grip us in our heart. It doesn't grasp at us. It doesn't arrest us when we think on it. It's just, we read it in passing and keep on moving along. We don't think about his coming as a matter of course, perpetually, throughout the day. Most of us. Maybe you do. It's a question. How often do you think about the Lord Jesus returning? And are you eager for it? Is it something you look to with hope and with longing with desperation. And if so, why? Why 
If you think about it, if you're eager, why is that? I would wager that the most common reasons for us thinking about and wanting him to return is that it's a means to an end. It's the end of suffering. It's the end of sorrow. It's the end of toil. It's the end of difficulty. But not actually for him. Not, not because we long for him. We just, he's going to help me with some of my problems. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are real things. Of course, there's the passage at the end of Revelation when it says that he'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death and sorrow. But those are not the predominant things. He is the predominant thing. Himself. You see, we, we want him to come for the same reason that the Jews sought him at Capernaum after the feeding of the 5,000. Turn over to John 6. This is what it says. After he fed the 5,000, and he went over to Capernaum to a different place. It says, on the next day, verse 22 of John 6, on the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, if you stop there, you might stop there and say, oh, that's very noble of them. That was wonderful that they went through all that effort to seek out Jesus. He certainly must have been pleased with their efforts when they got there. But if you keep reading, it's not so. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs or the miracles, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, what that means is they didn't seek him because he was the Christ, because he was doing signs and wonders and had truly come from God, and they wanted to hear what he had to say and see him for who he was. They sought him because they ate their fill. He met their earthly needs. He, gave, he satisfied their desire but that was all they were interested in. And I'm putting forward to you this morning that that, in a large part, is why the majority of us want Jesus to return, is so that he can help us with some problems and we don't have to deal with the difficulties. There's so much, look at what's going on out there in the world. Oh, it's, I'm so sick of it, all this godlessness, all this stuff. Lord, just come back and, and deliver us from all this. Or, or personally, in my per- I just have all these things, difficulties going on, and I just can't wait until Jesus comes back and saves me from those things. And we just think, oh, if we can just make it, we can just grit our teeth and hold on until he comes back, I'll be all set. Typically, that's the way that we think about it, if we think about it. But for the Thessalonians, it was not so. It was not so. The coming of the Lord was continually impressed upon their hearts and their minds. 
If you look back at that passage we already read from the end of chapter 1, it says, They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Those are the two reasons that were given that they turned to God from idols. To serve him and to wait for his coming. So this was, a, this, this was part of, it was a foundational part of their conversion that they were looking forward to him returning. It wasn't incidental. It was foundational. And then he talks about in chapter 5, In verse 4, he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. You're ready. You know this is coming. You're walking in the light. So they had it on their mind. And it wasn't primarily for the reasons that I just mentioned, that the Lord would come and help them out of their trouble and difficulty and affliction. It was primarily what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. You see, they weren't waiting for him to come because of... They, they wanted to get rid of some things. It wasn't the, the absence of these things that afflict me now or what I'm looking forward to when he comes. No, it was the presence of someone. Not the absence of some things, the presence of someone. They wanted to see him. They wanted to see him in his glory. For him to be magnified in them. I asked my son this week, I said, I said, I asked my whole family, I said, do you want Jesus to return? And he said, yeah, I do. And I said, well, why do you? And he said, well, to see his glory. Now that is from the mouth of a child. Simple. That's how simple it is. And that's what it really should be for each one of us. To see his glory. He just said it. He said it so matter-of-factly. So, like, how could you even ask me that question? This is, of course, why I want him to return. To see him as he is. And so that was the, the heart of the Thessalonians. But why? Why is that? Why was that their heart? Well, if you look at the way that Paul talks to them, they were really, they were really a model church, a model people, model followers of Christ to be imitated. Because as I said already, he talks to them about things that they know and things that they already do. And he says, keep doing this, do this more and more. They were healthy and abiding people. That was their spiritual state. So that, this, that, that's the how, that's the why they were looking forward to Christ's coming because they were healthy. They were walking before him. They were face to face with him daily 
in the temple of their hearts. And so it was just a matter of making reality what was in their hearts, making that the reality of their bodies and, and their eyes. It, it, what, but if you don't have that in your, in your heart daily, then you're not eager to see him bodily. Why would you be? If you resist him, if you avoid him in, in the heart, then why would you want to see him in the flesh? It says of them that, we already read that, verse 9, chapter 1, you turned to God from idols, you received the word of God, and you accepted it as the word of, not, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. Chapter 2, thir- verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 14, you became imitators of the churches in Judea. You suffered. Good news of your faith and love has been reported to us. It's reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us. As you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You're already doing it. Keep on doing it. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. They're already doing almost everything that's required of them. And, and Paul is just, because of that, he's gushing over them. That's why he says at the end of chapter 2, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And they were his glory and joy because they were walking in the obedience of faith. They were abiding in Christ. And because they were doing that, they were eager for him to return. Not to save them out of their distress, but so they could see him face to face. And so he concludes with that phrase, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. You see, but, but he's writing this to a particular audience. It's not just every believer. That, I mean, it should be. <laughs> it should be every believer, but it's not every believer because these were healthy, abiding, walking with the Lord Christians. So, so if that isn't you, then you aren't encouraged by these words. You can't be encouraged. We'll get to that in a second. We'll get to that in a second. So the healthy believer's disposition at his coming, I want to contrast this. I want to contrast the, he- the healthy believer's re- disposition before, at his coming and before his coming, which we've already done in some measure, and then the unhealthy believer's disposition at his coming and before his coming. I want to contrast those two things. Because if, if you're not healthy, then you can't be encouraged from this. It's not encouraging. It's a fearful thing. Or at the very least, a sobering thing. It should be. So the healthy believer's disposition, I'm just going to go through some passages here. In Titus 2.13, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting. 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, 
And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then 1 Peter 4.13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, the disposition of the healthy believer it is coming is it's a marveling at him in his glory. It's rejoicing that he's come to vanquish his foes and accomplish the redemption of his elect and establish the totality of his kingdom forever. It's all about him. It's not, I'm not looking forward if I'm healthy to his coming so that he can help me, so that he can fix me and deliver me and do all these things for me. Look at all my problems, all the things that I need. No, it's a complete heart and mind preoccupation with the Lord Jesus Christ in his majesty, in his glory, in his beauty. And I want him to come so that everybody can see like I see, so that those who are like me, we can join together and we can praise and exalt him. And so that those who have rebelled and refused him will be judged as they should be. I want him to come and to execute justice on the earth. And I want him to come and accomplish the fullness of redemption that he did at the cross to complete it totally and to usher in his kingdom finally. Him, look at him, look at him. Every eye will see him. Matthew Henry says of this passage, And those who are raised and thus changed shall meet together in the clouds and there meet with their Lord to congratulate him on his coming. To receive the crown of glory he will then bestow upon them and to be assessors with him in judgment, approving and applauding the sentence he will pass upon the prince of the power of the air and all the wicked who shall be doomed to destruction with the devil and his angels. To congratulate him. Think, think about that. We don't think about it this way. We really don't think about Christ returning in this way. I want him to come back so I can magnify him and congratulate him on his victory. Look at what he has done. Look at the awesome deeds that he's wrought in the earth. Now we get to hear of all the stories and all the things we never knew happened and how he knit it all together perfectly. It says in Revelation chapter 5 that John, he saw this scroll written with writing on the inside and on the outside. And no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look at it. And it says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open it or to even look at it. Now, I've read that before. I've read that before. And it seems to the carnal heart, a strange thing to weep about. Why was he weeping about that? Who cares? It's just a scroll. That's the carnal heart and the carnal mind because it was the Redeemer's scroll. And he was so concerned. Who will take this scroll and read from it? This is the climax and the pinnacle of all of history. And there's not going to be anyone who can take it and open it. And then he says that, it says that an angel put his hand on his shoulder and said, Weep not, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, 
He has conquered. And he will open the scroll. So there's no need for weeping, but rejoicing and congratulating him. Congratulating him. Yes, Lord, look at you, what you've done. It's a preoccupation with worship. A preoccupation with worship of the living Lord would save us from 10,000 other woes. So what's the, that's the healthy believer's disposition at his coming, but what about before? What about before his coming? We get a glimpse into this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You don't even see him. They don't even see him yet, and they rejoice with joy inexpressible or joy unspeakable and filled with glory. I wonder if that describes any of our hearts towards the Lord Jesus. A regular and a routine rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 John 2.28 says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. So those who are healthy and who will be ready are those who are abiding with him. It's those who walk in the obedience of faith now and experience that inexpressible joy of his presence in this moment now. It's that what I said before, that walking with him, walking before him. It's so easy to get preoccupied with a thousand other Christian things, a thousand other Christian duties, responsibilities. I mean, even good and noble things, right things. I'm not even talking about sinful things, idolatrous things. I'm just talking about getting preoccupied with the things instead of the person. Now, the right preoccupation with him should lead to the doing the things, but it is possible to walk in the motions to have a form of godliness without the power to miss him as the person. So what's the, the unhealthy believer's disposition at his coming? Shock and shame. This is a trembling thing. This is a trembling thing for me when I studied it because I've always kind of thought we'll all just be so glad when Jesus returns. Everyone who's in Christ will be just so overjoyed when he returns. But that's not what it says in the John, 1 John passage. And other passages, too. I mean, and if you just think about it, it makes sense. He says, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. So there's going to be, there's going to be a shock over how wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked they were for so long a time, and unnecessarily so. 
unnecessary. They'll realize, the unhealthy believer will realize, look at all the treasures and the riches that were available to me, and I forsook them, and I, I didn't take advantage of them, and I wasted it. I wasted it. And then the shame will be over their moral negligence in failing to give the more earnest heed to the things that truly mattered. You see, the, the options really are this. Be confronted with him now and deal with my sin or be confronted with him then and deal with my sin. And it would behoove every one of us to be confronted now, to deal with it now, to walk before him now in the light of his presence now so that when he comes, we won't be shocked out of our slumber and we won't be ashamed of how we wasted what he gave to us and entrusted to us. If you look at Isaiah chapter 6, this is exactly what happened to Isaiah. And I think that this is in some measure what would happen to believers who are not abiding in the Lord and walking before him in the obedience of faith. It says in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah, he sees all this, and this is his reaction. Woe is me! I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You wonder, perhaps, what was the tone of voice in which he said that. I imagine it was something like I just did at the beginning, a, a shocking, a startling cry because he saw the Lord. I think that that will be the response of an unhealthy Christian, a non-abiding Christian when the Lord comes. It's an absolute shrieking woe at the reality of, of how I've wasted my time and how my moral uncleanness before the holy and the righteous one. And so that's the reaction at his coming, but we could be helped a little by considering the reaction of an unbeliever, I'm sorry, the disposition of an unhealthy believer before his coming. And that disposition is this. It is someone who is weighed down and distracted with every other thing except Christ. Like I said, even good things, right things, maybe wrong things, sinful things, idolatrous things, but good things even. Imagine the shock of spending your life pursuing seemingly good things and realizing at the end that you neglected the living one, 
that you didn't have an abiding communion with him in your heart. It's a slothful and sleeping person. But thanks be to God that he gives us a great many number of passages to help wake us up to this reality. And one such passage is Luke chapter 21, which I'll read, verses 34 through 36. When Jesus is talking here about the coming of the Son of Man, and he says in verse 34, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. It's, it's the heart. It's the heart. The heart is the wellspring of life. And so we must guard it with all diligence. That your hearts be weighed down with three things. Dissipation, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, doing what? Praying, that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, to stand with confidence at his coming. Like it says in 1 John 2, to stand and have confidence and not shrink from him. Elijah, you guys can go ahead and come back up. The question before us is, am I abiding in him or avoiding him? It's so easy to avoid him and not even realize that we're doing it. Am I a Thessalonian Christian for which these words concerning those who have fallen asleep and the coming of the Lord are a great encouragement and consolation? Or am I a slothful and sleeping Christian to whom these words can't possibly be encouraging and comforting, but perhaps shocking and startling and awakening? I mean, so may, maybe some of you are listening to me and you think, well, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not like that. I read my Bible, I do all these things. I'm talking about every one of us. I'm talking about me, about your pastors, about all of us. Here's a good acid test. What is the disposition of your heart when you turn to the Lord to pray? Or maybe you don't. Maybe, I mean... That's a good indication right there. But, but when you do, perhaps privately, perhaps publicly, I am guilty of this, and we all are because I've seen it. When we come to the Lord in communal prayer settings, and it's cold, tepid kind of prayers that are, we, we know that we should pray, and we try to pray, but the fire is not there. There's no flame. There's no burning there's no passion. And, and the reason that happens in prayer is because prayer is perhaps the most keen way that we draw near to the Lord because 
it just lays you completely low. What, what else can you do? You're bowed down, you close your eyes, you can think about other things, but when you read your Bible, and I'm not meaning, certainly not meaning to pit prayer against Bible reading, but I'm saying that when you're studying your Bible, you can entertain your intellect with it. You can satisfy your curiosity with it. But when you come to prayer, there's nowhere else to really go. You're before Him. And if you come before Him in prayer and you just, you don't know what to say, or you try to think of something to say, and it doesn't burn, then it's a good indication that you aren't walking before Him in the light of His presence continually. I mean, th- when we come before Him in prayer and corporate prayer, it should be like, who's, when can I have my turn? Instead, it's like, do I have to pray? We don't realize how sick this means that we are. Or even my inclination in my own time with the Lord. Maybe I've spent, I've done this many times. 50 minutes, I've got an hour. 55 minutes, I'm reading and studying. Oh, I really should pray. And then five minutes, and I'm done. But there's no faking it in prayer. Prayer is, it's, it is both the acid test and it's the antidote. One of the great antidotes. Hearing, sitting at his feet and hearing his word and praying. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus said when he was talking to Martha, to Mary and Martha and Luke, and he says, and he says, Mary, Martha, you're distracted with many things, but Mary's chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. She was sitting at his feet and hearing his word, and in the very beginning of the next chapter, he said, he talks about prayer at the beginning of that chapter. So that's our, that, it's a good thermometer, a good indicator. And I think for most of us, it indicates cold. And it needs to be warmed. So let's pray to that end. Because I want to be, be a Thessalonian Christian at his coming. I don't want to shrink back from him in shame. I want to have confidence. And we can. We can do that. Okay, some of you are hearing me. You're th- thinking, that's me. That's me. I'm, I'm the cold person. I don't want to pray or I don't feel a burning in my heart when I pray. This is the hope of the gospel. That anyone who's in the sound of my voice, you can draw near to him this moment. And you can confess your cold and tepid heart. Or, or your lukewarm heart. And you can say, now I'm going to set my heart to seek him. And to walk diligently before him. To abide in him. I'm not going to waste another moment. It's the hope that he's given to us. So you can, every one of us can turn and change. That's the hope. That's the hope given to us. It's a blood-bought hope. Father, We thank you for this great hope. We thank you for examples like this in your word of Christians, faithful Christians who have walked before you blameless and uprightly, abiding in you, walking in the obedience of faith, doing what's right, walking in the light of your presence, communing with you, eagerly 
looking forward to and anticipating your coming. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name that it's possible. That it's a blood-bought victory. It's a quality of life, eternal life, that you've given to us freely. And that we can take possession of now. And I pray that for every person in the sound of my voice, every person in this room, if any of us, certainly all of us need to humble ourselves and confess that we could walk before you with a hotter and more burning heart. And I pray that you would come and that you would convict us. That you would, like it says multiple times in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon them. I pray that you'd do that in every heart. And that you would give us that divine eye salve and break us so that you can bind us. And bring us to a, a, a deep and a full kind of repentance where we turn and we seek you with the whole heart and we don't miss you Lord Jesus you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords one like the son of man who is presented before the ancient of days and one who is coming on the clouds in power and great glory make each one of us in this room the kind of believer that will not have to shrink back from you in shame but be able to stand before you in confidence at your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.